Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to the closing keynote here at the Corporate Eco Forum. We're happy to announce that in partnership with the Climate One Initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, we are bringing this keynote session as a joint program this year. The format of this session is going to be quite different. Our keynote, Dan Hesse, the CEO of Sprint, will make a formal presentation. As you know, at CEF, in the regular sessions, PowerPoints are not allowed. (laughs) Uh, But we're making an exception this time. And his formal presentation will be uh, followed by a conversation with Greg Dalton, who is a vice president with the Commonwealth Club and the founder of Climate One program there. And we'll also include a Q&A session from the audience that the Commonwealth Club members are used to. The session is being taped for future broadcast on the Climate One TV program and will also be made available to the NPR network for broadcast. So anything said here is on the record, both the speech as well as the Q&A session. Now on to Dan Hesse. Dan was named the president and CEO of Sprint Nextel in December 2007. Prior to this appointment, he was president uh, and chairman and CEO of Embark, and before that, president and CEO of TerraBeam. Prior to that, he spent 23 years at AT AT&T, where he served as the president and CEO of AT&T Wireless. He was named Wireless Industry Person of the Year by RCR Magazine, Executive of the Year by Wireless Business and Technology Magazine, and Most Influential Person in Mobile Technology by Laptop Magazine. He's a recipient of the Ellis Island Medal of Honor, and he also serves on the Board of Directors of Clearwire and the National Board of Governors of the Boys and Girls Club of America. And, and Sprint is a proud member of the Corporate Eco Forum as well, so please welcome Dan Hesse. Thanks a lot, MR. Um, I do have prepared remarks, mainly because it's on record and our PR group doesn't trust me uh, very much, but uh, no PowerPoints. As a matter of fact, uh, the quickest way to get shot at Sprint is to put up PowerPoints in front of me. You kill too many trees, I make people write it in prose, and you can typically get an awful lot on one page. Um, but uh, thanks very much for the introduction, MR. I appreciate it. And um, members of the uh, Corporate Eco Forum and the Commonwealth Club, thanks for having me. I'd also like to thank uh, Dr. Gloria Duffy of the Commonwealth Club and Greg Dalton of, uh, of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club for uh, fostering this great dialogue. You know, the fact that we have so many business leaders um, of this important area shows that uh, companies are taking their responsibility with respect to protecting our planet very seriously. Um, this is particularly important because of two kind of disturbing trends that, uh, that I see in America. The first is uh, greater regulation brought on by anti-business public sentiment, which um, business, if I use the term loosely, you talk about just business in general, has largely brought upon itself, whether it be Enron or WorldCom or the Wall Street mess or the current mess in the Gulf. um, Business has, uh, has some culpability here. The restrictions, though, and the degrees of freedom, flexibility, and innovation brought upon by these new regulations make America less efficient, less prosperous, and in my view, less American. Um, But if business wants to keep increased regulation, 
from spreading further, again, it's self-inflicted. We need to earn the public's trust. Uh, Winston Churchill once said of us, um, Americans will do the right thing after trying all other alternatives. Um, and, uh, you know, as business leaders, you know, let's try and do the right things right off the bat. Now, being in California, I'll also quote a famous Californian, Bob Hope, which kind of gets me to my, my second issue. He said that no one party can fool all the people all of the time. That's why we have two parties. Um, which brings me to the kind of second disturbing trend, and that's the breakdown that I see in what was once a great two-party democracy. As a result of, in many states, an incumbent-led gerrymandering of political districts, it's getting to the point where the only election that really counts is the primary, where you have Democrats, um, for, you know, kind of um, explaining how liberal they are in order to win, and Republicans how conservative they are. The middle is largely disappearing, as is compromise. F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, once said that, quote, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in your mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. And uh, perhaps America is compensating for its lack of collective intellect. Uh, America's Senator Bai recently resigned, and I can't really blame him, because a lot of honest discourse is, uh, is gone. Um, the responsibility to govern in a bipartisan manner is largely being replaced by keeping score. Uh, even the news really can't be trusted anymore to be the news. Instead, we get a lot of opinion shows masquerading as the news because news can attract, um, or networks can attract a target demographic more effectively by telling viewers what they want to hear and by entertaining rather than making them think. And I hope that was a Sprint phone I just heard. <laughs> Probably was because you got a signal in here. Um, yeah. um, we, uh, but we increasingly, you know, we listen to polarizing rhetoric, uh, which has been shrunk into you know, Homer Simpson digestible sound bites. Um, by the way, it's a great show. I, I watch it regularly uh, with, my, with my kids. But uh, in a nutshell, we're coming down, you know, we're getting just increased stalemates and lack of action through the political process. Uh, so it's going to increasingly be up to value-driven business leaders to show leadership, to take the lead on key issues like the environment and why corporate social responsibility uh, by our country's leaders has never been more important to fill some of this leadership vacuum that I think is going to result. Over the years, I've given a lot of talks on college campuses about business leadership as a vocation akin to teaching or the clergy or public service or parenting. Encouraging value-based individuals to think about working for large companies. Uh, a business leader affects the quality of life and the livelihoods of hundreds, thousands, even millions of people, depending upon the size of the enterprise. Not only your employees, but your suppliers, your customers, your shareholders, your communities, the environments that you do business in. Um, it's in a company's best interests to be responsible. Uh, I recently reviewed a very interesting study done by the Reputation Institute of the eight factors that most significantly drive corporate reputation. Citizenship was number two, right behind products and services, which was number one, but it was ahead of issues like leadership and innovation, even the quality of the workplace. Whether it be the philanthropy of the Sprint Foundation or some of our green initiatives, which I'll talk about um, in a minute, corporate social responsibility is one of the pillars that I show to our employees that supports the Sprint brand. Walmart which I know is here with its product sustainability index and Coca-Cola, um, a model in recycling and lightweighting its products, are two excellent examples of, uh, of how companies are creating innovative strategies in this area. I'm proud to be in this, uh, you know, in this audience with this group to, to talk a little bit about Sprint. The industry sector that, uh, that we're in, 
uh, the information and communications technology sector, which includes telecom networks and devices, contributes 2.5% of all U.S. carbon dioxide emissions. Um, That share is expected to grow to 3% by 2020 as the nation shifts toward more of a service and information-based economy. This growth rate is nearly triple the growth rate of other industries. The rapid growth rate of the wireless industry, though, gives us opportunities to make a meaningful impact on sustainability. As As one of only five trillion dollar industries in the world, wireless is the most rapidly adopted technology in the history of the world. Um, On a planet of about 6.8 billion people, there are more than 4 billion active cell phones in use, more than automobiles, PCs, and TVs combined. It's more than automobiles, PCs, and TVs combined. Um, So it's a very big industry, and it continues to grow at a rapid rate. While our sector is working hard at reducing our carbon emissions for that 2 to 3 percent, there's a much larger opportunity in terms of how this industry might be able to affect the other 97 percent. For example, wireless can replace physical experiences with virtual ones. Wireless technologies allow employees to work anywhere while accessing information and applications at speeds they're used to in the office. However, only 3.9% of the nation's workforce works outside the office regularly. This is a missed opportunity. Three-quarters of Americans spend 50 minutes or more driving to or from work every day, and my gut is it's even higher here in the Bay Area. And that's not to mention air travel on top of that. The wireless industry provides a growing opportunity to replace many of these high-carbon activities with virtual meetings, as I mentioned, and flexible work arrangements. Wireless machine-to-machine solutions representing a myriad of connected devices beyond mobile phones will usher in remote monitoring capabilities like integrating renewable energy generation and monitoring, for example, the intermittent nature of wind and solar. You know, sunny one minute, um, cloudy the next, gusty one minute, calm the next, leads to fluctuations in power. With remote, real-time monitoring, we can adjust supply and demand quickly. Remote monitoring of all sorts of machines, meters, vending machines, and what have you, reduce truck rolls. And there are new applications in development to address specific environmental issues, such as smart grid technologies, which could further reduce CO2 emissions and save 15 to $35 billion in energy and fuel costs. Another example is estimated that the use of wireless GPS increases driver efficiency by 15%. Wireless can greatly contribute to improving productivity, but it also represents an issue in terms of e-waste. Mobile devices are replaced more frequently than many other forms of technology. Computers, for example, have an average life replacement rate, if you will, of about 42 months. Cell phones, 17 months and it's more likely going to get shorter before that gets longer. According to the EPA, 16,000 cell phones are are discarded every hour, and an estimated 130 million cell phones go out of use annually, which could create an estimated 65,000 tons of electronic waste. To combat the continual upgrade process that will only increase as I mentioned, as technology advances, the wireless industry can encourage and make easy recycling and reuse of cell phones. Sprint has been at the forefront of recycling efforts in the wireless industry. Our wireless reuse and recycling rate at the end of last year was 40%, well above the industry average. We've collected more than 20 million devices for reuse and recycling. We announced earlier this year an expanded buyback program, which accepts wireless devices regardless of the manufacturer or which carrier you may have gotten the device from. And we issue our customers an instant account credit. What we found was we began by just accepting devices from anyone, but it really didn't bring in a whole lot of devices. People will just leave them in the drawer. Once we started an economic incentive, we saw that go up fairly significantly. Our goal going forward is to collect nine out of every ten phones we sell by 2017, and we're almost halfway there. 
Beyond recycling, we were the first carrier to offer a green device, and now the only carrier to offer three. For example, the Samsung Reclaim, Vanna White here, um, uh, its outer, ca- its outer casing, casing is made of um, biodegradable plastic made from corn. The Reclaim is, uh, is free of polyvinyl chloride, or PVCs, and nearly free of uh, brominated uh, flame retard- retardants, BFRs, materials commonly targeted uh, on green electronics guidelines. It meets Euro ROHS guidelines. It's free of cadmium, free of mercury. You know, these are kind of harmful materials if they're, if they're in landfills. The outer packaging and the phone tray inside the box are made from 70% recycled materials. There's no paper manual, so you have to go online to get the instructions. The images, the text, the printing uses soy ink. Um, and not only takes less energy to manufacture this phone, but it's a very energy-efficient phone it's, it, um, itself. It's 12 times more energy-efficient than the requirements to, for example, have the Energy Star label on it. Um, and, you know, it's green, and it also comes in ocean blue. Um, corporate social responsibility, where our environmental efforts fit, as I mentioned, is one of our core brand pillars. It's a comprehensive corporate-wide effort with objectives and measurements, and our progress is reviewed and measured regularly. Uh, we have a CX- CSR Executive Council, which I chair. Uh, and uh, so in 2008, to kind of get the thing going, uh, Sprint became the first telecom company to announce a set of 10-year aggressive, measurable, environmentally conscious priorities and goals. And these are to reduce our impact on global climate change, reduce our use of natural resources, reduce the environmental impact of our products and services, promote a socially and environmentally sound supply chain, and to enhance Sprint's Sprint's brand reputation for sustainability. There's also some corporate self-interest here, which is necessary to really get these going in business. Against each of these priorities, we set aggressive but achievable goals. For reducing our impact on global climate change, we established the goal of reducing our greenhouse gas emissions and also our total electrical use by 15% by 2017, as well as increasing our use of renewable energy to 10%. Sprint leads the wireless industry within the U.S. in terms of actual corporate renewable energy use and has achieved a 9.6% greenhouse gas reduction since we announced these guidelines at the beginning of 2008. Our 200-acre Overland Park, Kansas corporate headquarters campus is one of the most environmentally responsible in the country. 80% of the power that powers that campus comes from wind. And it's not just because the senior executives are there. Um, Over 60% of the campus is green space. And the water, you know, for the, for the grounds is all recaptured, so we don't use any of the, of the city's water supply for, for watering the green space. We're number 19 on the EPA's Green Power Partner Fortune 500 list. We're greening our facilities beyond the corporate headquarters. We received our first lead building designation back in 2005, and all of our new and refurbished, for example, retail locations will use lead criteria um, in their design. For example, low water um, use plumbing, um, high efficiency lighting, uh, etc. In addition to reducing energy consumption at our facilities, we're also looking at innovative ways to power our network. Our network uses 86% of the power that we use at, at Sprint. To help us with this, we deployed more than 250 hydrogen fuel cells at cell sites in order to produce backup power during commercial power outages. The only byproducts of hydrogen fuel cells are water and heat. No greenhouse gases. We are working with the Department of Energy to conduct alternate energy research for powering our network. As a matter of fact, we recently received a $7.3 million grant from the DOE for hydrogen fuel cell deployment. We're also testing solar, wind, and geothermal systems as a way to reduce electrical use. We're innovating. We're innovating as well. We hold 35 patents in 
kind of green technologies, and we have another 12 patents pending. We also have a goal to increase the percentage of devices that meet our environmental criteria by 2017. According to a study uh, by um, ABI, a research firm, it is estimated that 58 million green handsets will, will be shipped by 2014, and that's up from less than 10 million today. On the heels of the success of the award-winning Samsung Reclaim, um, we introduced two additional green mobile phones, the LG Remark and the Samsung Restore, uh, which both you know, have quickly been you know, adopted by our, by our customers and you know, received awards. Instead of using corn-based plastic, we use recycled plastics to, for, for the casings of, of these devices. And of course, they have other uh, eco-friendly features like the ones I, I mentioned earlier. They have also useful green applications ranging from offering green living tips and shopping guides to eco-calculators that help educate consumers on their personal carbon footprint. We also launched a line of eco-friendly accessories like solar chargers and carrying cases that are made from recycled materials. The accessories, as well as our green devices, come in fully recyclable, recyclable packages, which saves us about 647 tons of waste annually. Last February, Sprint became the first U.S. wireless carrier to establish a set of green design criteria for consumer devices. Working in partnership with our handset manufacturers, Sprint developed an industry-first environmental scorecard to bolster progress toward these initiatives. The scorecard tracks and measures key components such as removing environmentally harmful materials from the devices, the use of recycled plastics, sustainable packaging, energy efficiency, and green innovation. Devices that score above the qualifying threshold get our designated Sprint Ego Eco logo. Sounds kind of funny. Eco logo. Um, our environmental sustainability efforts have gotten us some recognition. Newsweek um, rated us number 15 uh, on their 2009 green rankings of, uh, of large companies, and we were the only telecom company to rank in the top 100. In further recognition of our efforts, I was called upon to testify on improving energy efficiency through technology and communications innovations before the U.S. Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Technology earlier this year. Just two weeks ago, Sprint received the Sustainability Leadership Award at the second International Electronics Recycling Conference and Expo. Forbes magazine, in conjunction with the Reputation Institute, recently published a report on the world's most reputable companies and Sprint's corporate reputation showed one of the largest gains of all companies in the survey. We believe the growing recognition of our work toward environmental sustainability was a key factor uh, in this improvement. But you know, we are just kind of starting this, uh, th this journey. You know, Mother Nature, as we all know, is, uh, is very powerful and can create crises when her forces are unleashed. There's been lots of examples recently, the, the South Asian tsunami, the Haitian uh, earth, uh, the, uh, the, the Haitian earthquake, uh, Hurricane Katrina, uh, Iceland's volcano. Um, we believe that the next real uh, phase for us in sustainability and, and for lots of us is really in, in innovation to harness, to harness nature, uh, nature's power, which is, which is immense. I've seen estimates that the theoretical potential of solar, solar power covers current global energy needs 2,850 times over. There's enough wind power to support global energy consumption at 200 times greater than global energy use. Howard Ruff once observed that um, it wasn't raining when Noah built the ark, uh, but I think I feel a raindrop, so I think it's time to get going. Thanks a lot. Welcome to Climate One. Dan, welcome to Climate One at the Corporate Eco Forum. Good to be here. Um, so when you took over as CEO of Sprint uh, in December of 2007, I've been told that there's some of the foundation would have been laid for the first corporate responsibility report. Um, but some people also believe that you were a little more open to sustainability than your predecessor. So I'd like to ask you what kind of 
education you had to do within the company, both within the ranks and with your board, to get them to be receptive to this sort of green direction in which you've taken Sprint? Um, you know, I think the CEO has to, do, you know, has to be the person to really kind of show the leadership at the beginning because it's not an easy thing to do. Especially, you know, the reason I was brought in to run Sprint was that um, kind of Sprint's business fortunes were declining and going in the wrong direction. And it's much simpler for a company to, uh, to undertake CSR initiatives of any kind, whether it's philanthropy or green, things that don't have a quick payback when things are going really well. Mm-hmm. And it's more difficult when the economy is difficult, you know, uh, or in, in, in our case, when, when uh, you know, we had some tough turnaround uh, decisions to make. But um, you know, people want to do the right thing. And uh, uh, so I, you know, it really wasn't uh, that difficult because, as you say, the, the seeds were already sown mm-hmm. where you know, we had a very environmentally oriented campus. Uh, and the, the technology and the business lent itself very well. So one of the opportunities I had in coming in was um, defining what I wanted our company to stand for. One of the things exercise, exercises I went through is what do I want the Sprint brand to stand for? internally, externally, because the brand is really everything. It's your company culture. It's your products and services. Mm-hmm. It's your CSR and what have you. And I think I, I viewed it, of course, I have two young boys that are 11 and 15. Um, I'm exposed to, if you will, a younger generation where these kinds of issues are much more, are very, very important. So quite frankly, it was just in our interest to do so. So it was, a, it was the time, if you were going to make it important for the company and you were laying out a new brand, okay, and a new culture to make it a, a a core element. I'm also huge on measurements. Always have been. I mean, mm-hmm. stuff gets done that's measured, and stuff that's not measured doesn't get done. I mean, that's not rocket science. So it was also an opportunity to put some of that in in place. Did your kids lobby you to go green at the company? Um, honestly, no. They they did educate they you, it. or yeah, yeah. I mean, you're just you're you're exposed to it all the time. But honestly, the company I ran before that, I had a chance to start with a new brand, the same, and I picked green as a color. Mm-hmm. and focused on green. Uh, maybe it's living in Europe for 10 years, where I think green initiatives are just so much more recognized. It's, it's so much more important because you have so many more people. Yeah. I lived in the Netherlands for five years where they're worried about getting, you know, global warming is a much bigger issue for them because, the, you know, the, they're below sea level. Uh, and I think that was part of it as well. I think the exposure in Europe where you recycled everything, uh, where energy and gas were really expensive and highly taxed, so you focused on conserving. It was very much in my DNA. So you mentioned measurement. Um, how have you, would you measure the, the green success of Sprint so far in terms of shareholder value, market share, morale? What are some of the metrics you use? To- well, what we do is, for example, we have, we've, and I mentioned we set these goals in 10 years by 2017. Mm-hmm. So we have some five-year goals. So you know, within five years, we want to reduce paper use by 30%. We want to reduce greenhouse gases in five year, in 10 years to 2017 by 15%. We want to have 10% of all of our energy use be um, uh, renewable energy by, by 2017. We want to recycle or reuse 90% of the phones that we sell by 2017. And those are fairly aggressive goals, so if you don't get on it right now, you're not going to reach them. So those are the kind of, you know, you put quantifiable numbers and stakes in the ground, and you measure... Progress. So we have reports at, for example, the executive council that, that, that I chair that are more or less red, yellow, green. Uh, right. Because, you know, the goal, you know, you, you don't turn into a pumpkin or whatever for five or ten years, but if you're not making pretty good progress, you're, you're not going to reach those goals. So some of those goals, I understand, is saving money, less paper, certain things like that, energy. Yeah. Uh, but how does reducing greenhouse gases directly affect Sprint today? I mean, it might be a good thing to do, but how does that translate to quarterly earnings or, or something that's tangible for Sprint? Or is it really honestly just because it's the right citizenship thing? I think uh, that is citizenship. So many of the things that we do from an environmental perspective clearly have financial gains. Um, part of it, the way I, um, I justify it, because quite frankly, as CEO, it has to make sense for the company. So you have to believe it makes sense for the shareholders. I think it's an important element of the brand to be recognized as being corporate, you know, corporate, you know, being very responsible and, and setting goals and achieving them. Customers will recognize that and you'll be rewarded in that way. 
And how about your own compensation? Is your is sustainability part of your own comp? Is it part of the compensation of, of your team? Sustainability goals built into what they do? I wish it was. Uh, it's not. Um, it uh, you know we basically we have you know we, we've set the goals. They're important. They're measurable. But they are but they're not part of the compensation system. But it's actually a good point. I don't see any reason why they wouldn't be. Yeah, I mean that you know a lot of t- the conversation here at the conference has been aligning incentives and goals and with those metrics. Um, <clears throat> what are some of the risks that Sprint face if it doesn't uh, do these things? I mean, does does climate change pose a risk to your business or your employees? Well, I think to the extent that um, you know it impacts the overall health of the economy, the health of the global economy, health of the U.S. economy. Absolutely, as as you know, a major corporation, uh, it does. Um, the other thing I find that, you know, kind of getting at self-interest is as you do these things, I mean, I spend a lot of time, we recruit, we go after really great talent mm-hmm. on the college campus, and they look at this stuff. Um, I can yeah. tell you, to some, a recruit I was, I was being told about just last week, who I was pretty impressed with, the reason they chose Sprint was because of our eco-record. So there are, if you will, intangible business benefits I've done some conversations with, with General Motors, and uh, they for sure and other companies are attracting engineering talent who want to work on electric vehicles and certain things who before didn't want to work for you know, an old Detroit company. So there's mm-hmm. certainly other industries are, are, are finding that. Uh, you mentioned regulation and, and policy. What's an example of a regulation that you think is harmful, that obstructs innovation and, and business, and what's one that you think is actually constructive and pol- positive that actually provides the right framework or uh, incentive for business? I don't know where to start on the ones that aren't productive. Um, but, uh, well, you know, I'd say there's, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of them that have, if you will, unintended consequences. Um, so, for example, one of the things that's being considered in our industry, the name is thrown out called net neutrality. Um, and it's to keep the Internet free and open, as it is today. It's, you know, the Internet, what has made the Internet so great is that it's unregulated. We are completely supportive of the principles, you know, the SEC's principles with respect to net neutrality. But uh, mm-hmm. we believe that if you put all these rules in place, uh, it, will, um, it will make it less likely that we and others will deploy some new innovative technologies that could be used in ways that people would find potentially harmful, even though it brings lots of other benefits. That would be, mm-hmm. you know, that would be an example of that. There's, there's a lot of unintended consequences. Also, for example, if we had to open up our networks without protecting users for any, any application, any device, um, cybersecurity and cyber threats are becoming a big deal. And right now, we, if we think something is harmful, we can go stop it from, from entering the network. And some of the way some of this regulation is being written, we, we would not be able to unless we knew it was a problem. And that, then, it's, then it's too late. Um, so that that would be that would be one example, and there's, uh, you know, there's lots of regulations. There's there's some of the things in, the, for example, the new financial re- reform bill, which I understand why the bill exists, but some things are being tacked on that go too far. That, for example, let one percent of the shareholders call a shareholder meeting. A shareholder meeting costs a ton of money, mm-hmm. and instead of management and the team working on serving the needs of customers and reducing costs and improving service. You're futzing around with additional shareholder meetings, and extremely inefficient. That would be, those those would be examples. So on, on net neutrality, I guess the, the you're on the opposite side from Google and some other companies on this one. It sounds like uh, who say that they don't want people to be able to uh, assess a toll for for the, for the pipes. Is that right? Yeah. Which by the way, no one is doing. I think what net neutrality is saying is, look, nobody's breaking any rules laws yet. You know, but just you know, just in case you might. You might, and we should. We think we should have two or three policemen live at everyone's home just to make sure you don't break any laws. And, and, and you've got law-abiding citizens out there. The internet. What has made it so great is that it is unregulated. Mm-hmm. It is free and open, and it should stay that way. And come in and put rules on, or regulations, or or penalize people for breaking rules and laws. Don't put all sorts of things out there that will have unintended consequences. So I think. Where I am on net neutrality, as an example, is I, I understand where Chairman Janikowski and the FCC are. I understand the principles, and we fully support the principles. It's the unintended consequences of the way the rules are written 
yeah, it'll achieve these things, good things, and it'll achieve all these other bad things, unintended consequences. So it's, it's, it's when there's a, there's a good, if you will, um, purpose, but the result, and there's lots of laws that you know, are like this, the, the end, end result wouldn't be good. My view, I've been in this industry now for 33 years, it would be a disaster. The way some of the rules are written would be a disaster for the Internet. Dan Hesse is the CEO of Sprint, and we're discussing sustainability at a meeting of Climate One at the Corporate Eco Forum in San Francisco. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, an example of a policy that is constructive, that supports business and supports innovation. Um, I think, uh, for example, the, the the FCC right now, you know, now is is uh, has a new broadband plan that they're it's actually not not enacted yet. But they're discussing it, but they've written down what they'd like to achieve in terms of expanding broadband availability across America and how to do that, how to increase the level of competitiveness of the U.S. telecom industry. I think that's very positive. There's been a number of discussions here at this conference about sort of anticipating regulation coming down the pipe and whether companies really resist and wait till the last minute or sort of get ahead of uh, uh, getting out of uh, materials that, that are not regulated today but that may be tomorrow. There's a law proposed in California that would require disclosure of the, the uh, absorbed radiation from cell phones, that when you go to buy a cell phone that it needs to say there that the amount of radiation... Um, is that something you support? Do you oppose? Well, um, what th- all of this is disclosed today. I, um, what I understand is being proposed here in the city of San Francisco, for example. Um, there is, first of all, there's there is very clear disclosure, and there are very clear guidelines with respect to radiation. It's hard um, to find, though, in that in the FCC information or in the book, right? It, I think, you know, again, I'm in, I'm in the business, I'm in the industry, or, and you go online. There's lots of sources for that. There are online sources. I think what's, what's, uh, what's very misleading is, is people are there, are, there are, there is a tremendous amount of sci- scientific evidence and an enormous amount of scientific evidence with respect to safety and studies that have been done over years. And, uh, you know, I think that there is uh, an effort to mislead the public uh, with respect to, uh, to safety, I think the um, uh, the government has studied this, and many people have studied this for a long time, and have set guidelines based upon the science of what is safe and what is not. And the information is clearly there. And we will always we'll provide whatever information. I mean, we 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 comply in terms of our relationship with suppliers. What we what we buy from suppliers, we make sure it all. Um, uh, complies with with all guidelines. Mm-hmm. We provide the information. We're not trying to hide that at all. Um, the only thing that I would um, potentially be concerned with is our efforts to um, make people um, believe things that there's no scientific evidence uh, that that would reach that conclusion. Eco phones are, are now a niche. They might become more mainstream. Can you envision sort of low radiation phones that maybe eco phones would also have low radiation for a portion of consumers who are concerned about that? Maybe a lot, many aren't. Uh, possibly, if there's a market. You know, if there's again, phones are low radiation. That's just the point, and that's what the studies show. I mean, how low is low? Right. Um, you know, they're, 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 all the evidence is that, and again, there are all sorts of guidelines and measures around radiation. I, you know, um, so but the, I, I don't, you know. Put it, it out there and let the consumers decide. Yeah, let the, let, the, let the consumers decide. And I don't know if there's a market there or not. Let's uh, welcome to you to line up at the microphones in just a minute. So uh, please do so now if you'd like to ask a question of, of, of Dan. Um, there's been a number of talk here about aspirational goals, and you mentioned a, l- a lot of goals, but if you were to sort of to reach even further, you mentioned 90% of, uh, why not 100%, take back 100% of your phones, 10% of renewable energy, why not, why not 20? I just want to ask you a little bit of sort of if Sprint could reach a little further. It's, it's doing a lot. You know, could you reach a little further on some of those goals? Absolutely. And so well, we've set these goals, and so, for example, a number of them were ahead of plan. And if we, you know, if we get to the point where we're going to hit the goal, let's say, sooner than five years or sooner than 10 years, we'll, you know, we'll say, great, did that, and we'll set a more aggressive goal and, and go there. So I'm hoping we can absolutely overachieve, and if we get ahead of the game, 
let's do it. But um, I've been accused, especially by financial analysts, of being a bit of a sandbagger. Um, where you know we you know we say, when we say we're going to do something, we're going to do it. Uh, and uh, but uh, by the way, I think our goals are aggressive, and that's one of the reasons we've gotten the um, kind of the recognition we have. They they are aggressive, but if we if we can, can achieve them sooner, we will set more aggressive goals. Absolutely. I don't know if there's any sprint directors in the room, but your comp should reflect that when you meet them. So, yes, um, please. Hi, Dan. I'm Hi. Roberta Bauman with Duke Energy. You have a Hi. great voice for radio, by the way. <laughs> uh, congratulations on everything that you've done. We've had a great conference here, and Sustainability 2.0, I think, is even a more holistic view than where it's been in the past. Your company's done just an incredible job on your environmental footprint and your supply chain. But when I listen to how broadly distributed cell phones are today, the opportunity that you can have enormous impact on is bringing information and economic self-sufficiency to people, not just in this country, but around the world. Mm. Putting information in the hands of consumers so that they can have more intelligent decisions around environmental issues. So uh, just a suggestion that mm. you broaden your view, that you use that reach, and we might be able to see something really magical happen. That's a, that's a great point. Actually, you know, it's interesting. There's, there's a, um, a lot of medical apps, we haven't talked about it, the, um, are going to be using cell phones and, and wireless technology that will really revolutionize healthcare. Simple as a text and a reminder to take pills uh, for you know countries all over the world where where this is this is very important. There's a, there's a lot of opportunities. That's a very good suggestion. Thank you. Hi there, Chris Page Hi. from Yahoo. Um, so I'm wondering if you have an example of a place where this desire to really build and nurture a value-driven company around sustainability has come into conflict with the really overwhelming uh, pressure for immediate quarterly shareholder value. The other question was, uh, next time you're in D.C. testifying, is there an example of an issue you think Republicans and Democrats can get together on in terms of sustainability that's actionable and can lead to substantive change? Boy, you... Solve the partisan divide for us. (laughs) Well, you know, the... um the issue from an economic return um, are, uh, you know, it's real all the time when we look at, for example, um, putting solar power on buildings. We typically have, uh, you know, not only a, a rate of return or net present value, but also a payback period when you look at an investment. And I think the CEO can give uh, uh, some flexibility to people on meeting those for it's got to first of all it's got to it's got to have a positive return over time, but let's say a solar panel might take ten years to get a payback and you normally require three to four, uh, and the reason that's particularly important is CEOs usually don't last more than three or four years, so you don't want the next guy to get credit <laughs> and you get booted because you're the one that that made the investment, um, but those kinds of things come up all the time, and so you can only you can stretch if you will, the normal returns, but only so far. And where the government can be helpful is in th- are things like tax policy and incentive and what have you, because until the technology gets to a given point, um, it is difficult to make, even if you do stretch, you can stretch them so far, but you can't do something that's, that's uneconomic. So I believe if there are more tax incentives in place, we could do even, we could do even more. Although, and so some things don't make the cut economically. Some things we do do anyway, because they don't make the, our normal cut, but we can at least pass the red face test that they have a long-term uh, payback. Um, I'd really have to think about something that the Democrats and the Republicans could get together on. Um, and this group probably has some, you know, much better insight into, you know, into that than, than I do. But <laughs> it's a tough one. Dan Hesse is one. the CEO of Sprint. Next question. Hi, yes, I'm Holly Kaufman from Environment and Enterprise Strategies, and I want to join the people in the room who really applaud you for everything that you're doing. So that's the background for this question that I don't, um, I mean to be challenging in, a, in a, only a very positive way. I'm uh, very interested to hear what you've been doing in all the realms that you have to make your impact on the environment less bad. 
What I wonder about in a company like yours that really is trying to innovate in this area is what are you doing to um, actually create products that don't do harm or may actually do good. Mm-hmm. For example, you've changed your plastics from the corn base to the recycled. That's fantastic. What can you do to still make money but perhaps not be um, encouraging the consumerism of people continually buying new phones? Can you, can you produce a phone where you are then just continually updating people's software and maybe they pay something for that? So I'm trying to think how you could really take the next step to um, not just minimize impact, but eliminate it. Um, you know, if you can convince Steve Jobs not to come out with an iPhone every year, we, you know, we can slow down too. Um, but, you know, that, that's the issue is, is what we do do is we do do soft, uh, software updates regularly. But the hardware in terms of how fast the processor is, how clear the screen is, that, that keeps coming up. But what we can the universality do, of all of the accessories so that they don't have to buy a new one every time you get a new phone. By the way, that is something that the industry adopted. It was one of the, the few, you know, we've had a few successes as an industry. And one is a common charger. So if you'll notice, every cell phone now used to, used to have drawers full of chargers. Everyone uses a micro USB. Um, there, I think we... We're well over 90% of the phones that are sold use a micro USB. I think every phone that Sprint sells today uses one. So your charger should work. And and I should know because I kind of have every brand. I'm always trying every new phone. So I usually have six or seven in my my office at home because I want to know how to use all our phones. Where I think we can make the world better is in this 97%. It's not just so much what we can do at Sprint, but how we can impact other businesses and industries in areas like telecommuting. So, for example, this new 4G phone, as long as I'm doing advertisements here, this, uh, this new piece of uh, hardware that, unfortunately, will probably be obsolete in 18 months or, or what have you, but it's, this, it's the cat's meow right now. Um, it has two cameras. It has an 8-megapixel camera here and a high-definition camcorder here, but it's also got a 1.3-megapixel camera in the front for video conferencing so that for telecommuting all sorts of other travel applications. People don't need to travel as much. I think there's so much more. You know, the, it'll automatically, um, when you put it in the car dock, you know, the GPS, which will make the car more efficient and use less gas. Um, it'll also recognize it's in the dock, and rather than you having to use your hands, it'll all do it voice to text and, and you know, kind of hands-free. Uh, that'll, that'll make them safer as well. Um, I think there's a lot we can do from a technology point of view to apply wireless technology to make companies use a lot less energy, improve the quality of lives. Um, Telemedicine is one where um, that'll be truly revolutionary. I think it'll change. The medical field will change where people don't want to have to drive to the doctor's office, and the doctor doesn't want a whole bunch of sick people coming in making other people sick. Um, In terms of remote monitoring, um, distant health care with video, uh, so the doctor can actually look at you. And as bandwidth gets greater, so that's the big reason that 4G, when people talk about 4G, people go, well, why do I care about 4G over 3G? It's video that uses a lot of bandwidth where the speed really matters. For example, if you have high-speed Internet at home, you notice the difference between that and dial-up or high-speed versus low-speed. It's really when you, get, when you get visual content, TV or what have you. So when you get high-definition screens, so this has a Blu-ray quality screen on it, you can download stuff real-time and, and get resolution so a doctor can, if he wants to look at, let's say, a bump on your hand or what have you, can, can see well enough with new wireless technology that he couldn't with, let's say, 3G or 2G. That'll save a truck roll or, in this case, a drive of either the, either the doctor or the patient that'll take a lot of greenhouse gases um, out of the atmosphere. So I think the great opportunities are really applying the technology to all sorts of industries. There are a lot of great ideas that are, that are, that are coming up. Yours is a, is, is a good one. Generally, what we try to do first in phones is this may, you know, the United States is, is one thing, is we try to take these phones and refurbish them uh, not only here but in other countries around the world and keep them in use for as long as we can. So if I'm a super techie, I need the next device. There's an awful lot of people around the world for example, 18 months from now, two years from now, three years from now, that would think this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And so how can we, yeah, so how can we continue to get, multi, you know, use, think about it worldwide? 
Um, and this is a lot of what our recycling effort is, is about as well, um, is uh, or we, we, refurbish, we refurbish devices for use uh, around the world and, and get, them, get, get them extended life. Two uh, follow-ups on that. It's one thing to have a standard charger interface. It's another to sell the chargers separately from the phone so that each time someone buys a phone, they don't get a fifth or a sixth charger that they don't need that ends up in that drawer you talked about. Are you considering selling phones without chargers for people that already have them? And uh, actually, we did that uh, and got all sorts of complaints. You're jipping me. I didn't get a charger. (laughs) Oh, you know, it's like, how can you win? So uh, that is actually a very good point. We would like to do that. Um, What's the point? No one makes money on that charger except the factories in China that make them, perhaps. But, I mean, it's, yeah. it's a throwaway, right? There's no, there's no reason, because that's exactly what you'll do. You'll get a whole drawer full of the same kind of chargers that, that, that are universal. And one quick follow-up is, um, what about the idea of, of leasing phones rather than selling them so that you would then take them back from people and then you would get higher returns and would that be a way to, to change the, the model of uh, rather than selling phones to people that they lease them in some way and then you sure to get them back and then we know they're disposed of properly in, in a proper way? Um, Is that a non-starter I financially? Yeah, I don't know if it's a non-starter financially. I don't think that people necessarily want to do that. You know, it used to be the way phone service was done in the United States where you never owned your phone. You know, back in the Bell system. Yeah, Ma Bell owned your, yeah. 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 Um, and as soon as people could buy them, they wanted to own them, and they went that way. And uh, uh, it's, uh, if you really think about it, um, in a way, uh, you're owning the phone, but you're making a down payment. When you pay, let's say, $200 for this phone or an iPhone, you, it's really only a down payment. That's why you sign a two-year contract. That's a $600 device you're paying 200 for. That's why there's a two-year contract and an early termination fee. These right. things are, I mean, they're, they're screaming computers. And the smaller you make a computer, the more expensive it is. You know, the larger it is, the cheaper they are. So most people don't realize that. So in a way, you're almost, you're leasing it already. But uh, I'll I'll think about that. But what we think will encourage and what we've already shown, we've already seen is encouraging people to bring it back is give me money for bringing that phone in um, and I'll bring it in. Don't give me any money. I'm going to leave it in a drawer. I'd lease my phone. The, uh, th- there's an interesting demographic trend where we've heard here several times, you know, car shares. People, when I grew up, the idea, I never dreamed you know, of sharing a car or, or renting a car on an hourly basis. But young people these days, increasingly in San Francisco and other cities, lease a car by the hour when they need, they, and they don't aspire or don't own a car the way that previous generations did. Transportation is a service mm-hmm. that's there when they need it, and they don't buy an asset that depreciates uh, in their garage when they're not using it. And so there is some suggestion that younger generations might look at things owning and renting differently than, than you and I. Have you ever tried to pry a cell phone out of a kid's hands? No, in fact, I, there, there's, there's, I know an executive from GM who said if, uh, famously that if he, his daughter were to ask to give up her phone or her car, he, she would probably give up her car before her phone. Yeah. Next question. Um, my name is Jose Iglesias from Semantic. Um, first of all, thank you very much for coming and talking with us. Um, um, my question is uh, moving away from the handheld devices, which is a very interesting topic, but um, could you say a few words about what you expect the role of your company to be with respect to the smart grid? Um, where do you see it evolving over the next two to three years? Is it a major opportunity for, for you as more and more intelligent um, devices, not cell phones, but you know, machine-to-machine type of communications and the like? My perception is, is that's a major opportunity for the telcos, and I just wanted to know if, as a telco, whether you share that opinion and where do you see that going? We're st- just beginning to really evaluate smart grid, smart grid technology, where it's going. But in a nutshell, um, the connectivity, there's going to be tons and tons of devices that have wireless chips in them, and they'll need connectivity to the Internet. Uh, for example, this, this phone has what's called a mobile hotspot in it, where you can connect up to eight devices, anything that's got Wi-Fi in it. So your PC, your camera, your gaming device, your MP3 player, whatever might have Wi-Fi can all be connected. You can be going down the, you can be driving your car, be, be talking on your phone, and your, you know, your kid, one could be on a gaming device, your wife can be on her PC, another one could be on a netbook. They could all be connected to the internet at 4G speeds 
all connected to the internet via this device because wireless chips, Wi-Fi chips are very, very inexpensive. Regardless of the era interface, whether it's Wi-Fi or 4G or 3G, they're going to get very inexpensive. That's what's going to be crucial to medical devices. You're going to see wireless chips sewn into your clothing. So your doctor will know what your heartbeat is. Mm -hmm. Um, Athletes, the coaches will know what their body temperature is. All those things will be monitored all the time. They're going to get very inexpensive. And in smart grid, there'll be all sorts of devices. Everything is going to be connected to the Internet wirelessly. So that is the area for for us to play. But uh, beyond that, we're just beginning to look into smart grid technology. Next question. I'm David Hitchings from Northrop Grumman Corporation. Um, our executive compensation is tied to greenhouse gas goals. So, uh, Good for you. If we can do it as a security company, I'm sure you can. Um, my question is... Can I'm sure you, talk- you use a lot more, though, than we do. <laughs> uh, absolutely. <laughs> um, that's why it's a bigger goal. The, uh, uh, can you tell us about your innovative um, flexible office program and, and, and hoteling program and, and, and uh, the uh, hoteling and, and work-from-home type of things that you've offered to your employees and uh, how, you're, how you're sharing that information with other companies? Um, our folks probably know more about how we're actually sharing it with other companies um, and more about it. We do have one. Uh, we, we have uh, quite an extensive uh, hoteling and kind of flexible workforce uh, program with respect to flexible hours. What we have found is employee satisfaction when they can work at home goes up. Retention goes up. Our care centers a lot as well. People who do customer care and what have you can work at home. Um, and we're going to do more of it over time. Uh, how we share that with other companies, quite frankly, I don't really, I, I don't know what we, what we share and, wh- and what we don't. Um, what we have uh, done is develop applications for companies. One of them that really spurred this was, if you remember the, the concern with the swine flu last season, where companies were worried about losing a lot of productivity if there was a swine flu outbreak because they didn't want workers coming into work. Even if you were suspected of not feeling well, work at home. Uh, and, uh, and, and what would happen if, it was, you know, if there was a lot of fear of coming into the office? And wireless technologies, we, built, uh, we have a capability ourselves that Sprint has an application that we've co-developed with Microsoft and Cisco um, that really creates a virtual office where these things are four-digit extensions, just like the PBX. Uh, and your, you know, your laptop works with this, which works with your office phone. So you can really be anywhere. People would think you were in the office. You'd be just like you are in the office. Uh, and the same thing can be used for these kinds of um, mobile or flexible work environments. So uh, maybe, you know, if there's, you can, do you know how we, what we share or what we don't share with other companies? I don't know. These are my two experts. Can, can you explain what hoteling is for people who might be... Oh, hoteling is, uh, you often see it in sales offices, or, or, and we, that's where we use it a lot, as well as in customer care, where there's a cube, and somebody's in that cube during these hours of the day, and somebody else is in it during different hours of the day. So it's like a hotel or an office where you don't have your own office. Maybe there's 50 people that work in a sales office. Most of the people are supposed to be out most of the time, so maybe there's only 10 desks. And so there's 10 desks, and you come in and you just plug in, and you're there, but it's not your workspace. It could be somebody else's workspace the following day. So it's shrinking the size of the office sure. because whether you're working at home or you're on the road, you don't have to have a, a discrete spot for every employee, and it's much more efficient. And shrinks your, your greenhouse gas footprint. People don't have to commute. There's Absolutely. less HVAC the whole, whole way around. Uh, Dan Hesse is the CEO of Sprint. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're discussing sustainability at Climate One at the Corporate Eco Forum in San Francisco. That's for our radio audience. I know you guys know that already. Um, I know who I am. There, <laughs> there was a story in the New York Times the other day uh, that was talked about here at the conference about impact of uh, fragmented attention span on, on, on brain development and, and that sort of thing. A lot of it is you know, the texting obs- obsession with youth and o- Oprah's out there with her campaign not texting. Mm. Is that on your radar at all? How much Absolutely. of that is, is personal responsibility? How much of that is the responsibility of companies making these products? We're extremely supportive. As a matter of fact, we work very closely with Oprah on no texting uh, while driving. 
Uh, so we are actually one of the leaders of that campaign. As a matter of fact, I just saw this thing we're starting to pass out, which are these thumb socks that we give to kids that put them on when you're going to drive because they don't, you know, they don't bother your driving, but you, you know, they're, they're yeah. too clumsy to text with them, and it just keeps you from texting, and it also reminds you, well, nope. So that we're passing. Does it send out. a signal to the parents if they take the, the right. thumbs thing <laughs> off while they're driving? Yeah. So okay. So we you, we, are, we we think that you know, we are against anything that distracts drivers. I mean, I've got my my oldest son is in driver's ed right now. He just he's 15. He just got his driver's permit. I went driving the first time he drove drove a car was this weekend. I started in a you know in a parking lot, and then we gradually went out on the street. It's. It's harrowing enough when he's really focused. I can't even imagine, uh, you know, somebody trying to text and, dr- and drive. So we are totally behind that. And on the on the cognitive parts of it, in terms of you know whether it's affecting people's attention spans and that sort of thing, they've done. I don't know if you saw the story. It was a I big spread, big spread about how um, it's not just it's not cell phones, it's computers and everything else. And this gets into more of the you know health and environment area than the sustainability. I mean, is that part of your your, your on your radar at all? That isn't. It could be on the radar of some of our folks, but I, I'm not familiar with it. Any other questions before we uh, before we wrap this up? Last one, sure. Hi, Dan. Hi, uh, Doug Moore with uh, Credo Mobile here in San Francisco. We uh, uh, we're actually an MVO on Sprint, and as working assets, we've been with you uh, as a partner for about 20 years. Awesome. Um, and we were a pioneer, sort of, in the social responsible business area. Um, starting many, many years ago. But one of the things, I think a theme I hear, is sort of the demand for information around many of these things. And sort of back to the handset world, we, we have a tremendous demand from our customers for green phones, um, things like that. You talked about a uh, sort of a checklist you have and a, and a sort of a, a blessing that you place on certain phones, I guess three phones now. Mm-hmm. Um, is that a list of criteria shared broadly? Is that something you communicate so customers can sort of themselves tell the difference between phone A and phone B? Well, what we do is we, um, if it earns the good housekeeping seal, if you will, our, our eco seal, we put the seal on the device. And again, we have three now, which is the, um, really the, the, the most green phones. What we're working with our suppliers across the board on is this overall scorecard in terms of the areas that I've described. And if, if they do well, you know, generally we're going to buy more phones from them. It's not kind of a, a black or white um, on a particular device or overall, but we encourage them across the board to make them more energy efficient, packaging, et, et cetera. Um, and, if, and again, if a device meets all of these criteria, it gets, you know, it, it gets if, if you will, the, the, the good housekeeping seal. So we're beginning to make this uh, an, an issue of education with respect to our, with our customers and trying to. And so we have a green section in our store. So our devices that for, so people who are really interested in, um, in the environment, the, the devices, the phones, the accessories, uh, the solar chargers, et cetera, all of those things are in a section of the store. So these are the devices, and, and we explain, you know, what's eco-friendly about, about those. But quite frankly, it's a, it's, a, it's a good suggestion. I think what I'm hearing is just more education, perhaps, about the rest of the phone line. We're trying to get everything. You know, eventually, what I would suspect, would hope is, you know, 10 years from now, um, all the phones that we would carry would be at least that good. And then there would be another, if you will, what, what it would take to get into the eco-friendly zone would be something even, you know, much more... Significant because so for example even in the terms of the plastics the corn plastic it's not a hundred percent corn plastic only a percentage of it is because we haven't figured out the technology that'll make that firm and resilient enough to be a hundred percent biodegradable so we hope to continue to make progress thank you thank you when you look to the future I have a question for one of MR's folks is and this speaking of metrics this clock went out during the program and was that reset to uh, to sixty when you counted it down? It's okay. We just get, get the hook, I think. <laughs> if we don't get to fifty six, this doesn't work for radio. So that's oh. why, that's why I'm asking. What does this clock pertain to? 
it's counting up to 65 minutes. Okay. Um, one last question then sure. is when we look to the, to the future, um, when you look to the future, um, there's a lot of talk about what the cost of energy and oil is going to be, um, you know, that sort of thing. You know, energy is an important data center, a big factor. So w- what sort of tools do you look at and what, what do you think, the, is, how much of that is on your radar in terms of looking at future costs of energy affecting your, your business? Well, it's difficult to predict what the cost of energy is, is going to be. Um, I think it will be and should be more expensive than it is today. I think energy, quite frankly, is, uh, um, is too inexpensive to get the, the, the kind of savings that we ought to get, to get the environmental orientation that we should. I've always believed this is, this is not a sprint view. This is a Dan Hesse view. Um, I think we should tax energy more than we do similar to what the Europeans do. It's amazing how much more gas you save when it's six bucks a gallon than when it's three bucks a gallon. Uh, you think about it very, very differently. And um, you ever I, think thought about is, for I think water is too cheap. Pardon? You ever thought about running for Congress? <laughs> um, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. Um, the, uh, and that's what's no politician has the courage to, to no, say that. Because they can't get elected. Right. And, you know, it's not really a we won't vote for them. Because you could be there and you wouldn't, you know, it's... it's, it's um, yeah, exactly. We would not vote. It's, it's, it's really too bad. Uh, but if you, if, you, if you look at anything from an economic perspective or a logical perspective, it would say combination of things. I don't want to get on my soapbox. You look at our spending as a country uh, and how that's going and the demographics, we have to do something on the revenue side. The most logical place to get the revenues, where you get a twofer, if you will, is to tax energy because we'd also start saving the planet at the same time versus other, you know, whether it's income tax or anything else. Again, this is not a sprint view, but this is, this is my view. If we're going to tax anything, we should tax energy. Just one footnote. There's a gentleman here uh, who he works for a, a company in British Columbia. British Columbia put a tax on energy, uh, on carbon, in, in, in their economy, and they made it neutral for consumers. Uh, companies are paying that tax, and so it's an interesting model of at least someone in, in North America who's, who's trying to do what you're saying, make energy a little more expensive so we, we use it more efficiently. By the way, combined with some incentives, uh, because the government could then afford it, they would have the money to put incentives to use renewable Sources of invest energy in as well to invest exactly invest in renewable. Have you do you participate in the? Uh, are you a member of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce? Have you made that voice be heard in any business group or any policy group? Well, I'm a member of a number of different business groups, not that one, um, the Business Council and uh, and other groups, and we debate these things. Um, uh, it, it's not a widely held view. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> do you have any friends in that group? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I generally side with them on most other issues, like you know like less regulation. Sure, sure. Our thanks to Dan Hesse, CEO of Sprint, for his comments here today at Climate One, a special meeting at the Corporate Eco Forum. Thank you for coming. Thanks, everyone.